As you're seated, would you open the Bible to Genesis chapter 29? Genesis 29, and uh, last week I mentioned how chapters 29 and 30 belong together, and so we were, we were just going to get started and, and get through them and cover them all together, and then we only got through part of chapter 29. And so I'm going to refrain from making any promises this morning. <laughs> But the Lord will have His will done and for His glory. We're focusing on the life of Jacob. His, he's going to be renamed soon Israel. But he's living this life as a brand new believer. He had encountered God. Chapter 28, he committed himself to God and he continued on his mission that he had been sent on originally to go and find a wife from his extended family for the purpose of not finding a wife from the women who are around him and his family in the promised land, those, those women who were steeped in idolatry and paganism. Uh, he was headed back to Padan Aram to bring a wife back who would be faithful to him and to his God. She would also have to convert, but she would be brought out of all of that and to him, to his family, and to his God. Now, because we believe every word of Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, We've decided that we are going to be reading all of the words to these two chapters. We don't want to leave anything out of God's Word, what He says. What God says and the way He says it is so much better than what I would say or how I would say it anyway. So we want to make sure that we are reading every word of this. Many faithful pastors would agree with that, by the way. But they would still summarize a lot and read some key verses and go through. But, but we've intentionally done this because that, that's what we say, that we believe this is God's Word. Let's live it out by reading it and, and reading it together. Uh, but one of the challenges in studying this way together is you can, use, you can lose the context, the main goal of the passages, where this is all heading. So we spent, if you remember, last week just a minute setting up the context of the big, uh, uh, the big context of this account, the, the big picture of the Bible is, is all leading to Jesus. The Messiah is coming. And that's, so that's the big picture of the Bible, the big context of this chapter, these two chapters. And then the smaller context just of Genesis, where God is bringing about His covenant people, the people of Israel who will physically bring the Messiah. So that, that's a, a smaller picture, but still the big picture of this whole book. And now we're just down to this one man's life, Jacob. So the challenge for us is to learn from this account keeping in mind the big picture, but also the, the lessons that God has for us in these individual accounts and just in the things that happen in this man's life. So what we want to make sure that we don't do is, is make up our own ideas about what to do with these stories, these accounts. We want to study to, to know what God wants us to know. So there's a temptation, you know, to moralize these stories. You know, we see Jacob de deceiving people. Oh, let's not deceive people. We see uh, manipulation and, and polygamy, and, and we see a lot of things, and, and we could say, let's moralize this and say, don't do that, you know, don't, don't do this, and, and stay away from that. And those are true and important lessons, but that's not what God intended in these particular passages. Those are the things that happen, but He doesn't address those for us. That's not the main idea in giving these accounts, and so if you've been coming for weeks or months, over the past year, you've probably recognized some really similar lessons, some really similar sounding um, application points in different ways. 
Because many of these accounts are teaching similar lessons. They're teaching a lot of the same things in, in different ways. So the challenge is really to present these same or similar lessons in ways that are fresh to us, like God presents them to us, in, in ways that are fresh. And I think the reason that God spends so much time teaching us the same lessons or similar lessons over and over and over again is because we just don't get them. <laughs> we just don't get them quickly enough all the time. And I, I'm, not, I'm not talking intellectually. I'm talk, not talking in our brains. We can comprehend fairly quickly, but we can get a sense of them. But our, our heart isn't as quick to let these lessons sink in so that these lessons become real in our lives, noticeable, coming out of our actions and our words, our words and works. So God uses story to, to help these lessons come to life, literally to come alive to us, and he uses repetition so that we learn the importance of these lessons and, and ensure we learn them. But then he uses different perspectives within that repetition so it doesn't become tedious. He's so good. He's so good and so wise to give us his word and to give us these different, different ways, different lessons, the same lessons, different ways. So we're learning many of these things, and, and, and I've got the lessons phrased a little bit differently for us in this outline. Uh, you, you may think, wow, this is kind of strangely worded, the way, the way this, is, this is happening. As we go through the outline, uh, you'll understand, but, but it's so that they don't become monotonous to us, that, that they don't become just tedious and the same thing over and over again. We'll talk about them at the end, but let's pray for our time in the Word together and get started. Father, thank you for your Word. Lord, we come to you because you're the author of this Word. Lord, you're the one who has written it, and you are the only one, God, who can take these words and plant them deeper than just our minds, Lord, into our hearts. God, you're the only one who can change us and apply these things um, to us. God, we are dependent on you to do that. We ask that you would do that. But Lord, not for our own sake, but for your glory, that you would be praised and worshiped. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so like I said, we're, we're going to be reading all of the words. We have already read verses 1 through 30 and worked through them of, of chapter 29, so we won't go over them again, but what we're doing is a little bit different from what we normally do. We usually read the whole section, the whole passage, and, and then we start breaking it up and, and teaching and applying, Lord willing. Uh, what we're doing this time is reading through, kind of giving some notes as we go along, and then just discussing the lesson at the end of each section rather than reading all of it at once. So it's a little bit different, but Lord willing, still helpful. The first thing we saw last week, just as a review quickly to bring us up to speed, is that Jacob in chapter 29, verses 1 through 30, reaps payback. He reaped a lot of payback for his deceit, his dishonesty, his, his manipulation, the things that he had done um, that, that were wrong. Uh, we saw that he encountered God. He was excited. So we, we saw that he started this journey and he picked up his feet. Right? He was excited. He just marched along the 350, 400 miles, um, whatever it took to get there. He, he made it to the right town, the right family at the right time, based on God's faithfulness, as he had promised. But then Jacob began to falter. He, he started looking at the outside and, and being attracted to Rachel because of what he saw on the outside. And since he didn't have that bride price to pay her father to be able to marry Rachel, Jacob worked for him, Laban, his uh, her father for seven years to be able to pay the bride price and it, to him they just seemed like a few days and then Jacob tricked uh, Laban tricked Jacob and he brought Leah instead of Rachel under the cover of a veil in the in the darkness of night 
And it was, it was a very deceitful thing for him to do, a very tricky, terrible, really, thing for him to do to his daughters and to Jacob. But they agreed after the week-long wedding was complete for Leah that Laban would then give Jacob Rachel. And that that was in exchange for another seven years of employment. That's what we covered last week, that both Leah and Rachel are now married to Jacob, and both of them have maidservants given to them, as was the custom. But we saw that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And in fact, verse 31 is going to tell us that Jacob hated Leah. Now, we understand the word hate as uh, in this context, not hating like I wish she were dead kind of hate, but the kind of hate where I am choosing this Rachel and not choosing you, Leah. I've not chosen, I, I, I don't um, want to be associated with you as much as I want to be here with Rachel. But for Leah, it was probably un- unbearably difficult to live in a situation like this. It probably did feel like hate to her, like we think of. But before we move on, we, we want to review just quickly the lessons that we had. The, the two lessons from that first section were that Christian, don't be speedy to believe just everything. Um, just because you're different. You, you have a different mind. You have, you have been recreated, uh, regenerated into a new creation on the inside, and, and that new creation is being formed and molded into the shape and, the, and the, the picture of who Jesus is. And so you think differently now. You, you act differently, but everybody around you probably doesn't. And so we're, they are still seeing the world the way that we used to see the world. Get out of it what you can while you're here and try to make the most of it because when it's over, it's all over. And, and so there are going to be conspiracy theories. There are going to be scams. There are going to be false teachings that come about. And we're not to fall for those because God is the God of wisdom. We have promises from God to look So we don't look for what this world can give us to to try to satisfy our hearts and to to satisfy all that we need. Our God is enough. His Word is enough. And so the second lesson we had was that the Lord disciplines whom He loves. This was the payback we were talking about, that Jacob was experiencing some really difficult, uh, manipulative and deceitful uh, troubles. And it was God's God's work in his life to bring about discipline for what he had done, how he had treated his father and his brother. But this discipline we, we saw from Hebrews 12 is that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it, it's, it's a good thing when God disciplines us. It brings us joy. It, it brings us uh, just a, a trust in Him as the perfect Father. And it brings us joy and trust because that means He hasn't given up on us. Because it'd be a whole lot worse if God just didn't care whenever we messed up. He didn't do anything. He just gave us over. And so our hope, even in discipline, is that God loves us. The proof is Jesus. Further proof, proof is a changed life being made more like Jesus. So that's the review from last week. Now we're caught up, and now we can begin here with section number two that Jacob reaps in uh, verses 29, 31 through chapter 30, verse 24. Jacob reaps posterity. Posterity. You can say descendants, uh, children, if you like better. We have the P because it matches up, you know, with the literary. Okay, that's okay. Whatever. (laughs) 
Now, as we read these verses, people have tried to say, look, God's word is so inaccurate. You know, the Bible is just made up and, and it can't be true because the names that these mothers give to the children are not etymologically accurate. <laughs> In other words, the, word, the names that these sons are given don't align perfectly with the intended meaning um, that's here. So here's what I mean. The, the first son will be called Reuben, which looks in the Hebrew like it should be Ru, look, Ben, a son. But Rachel says she, named him, she names him that because the Lord has looked on my affliction, not look at my son. Affliction in the Hebrew sort of sounds like son. And she says I named him that because now my husband will love me. Love sounds similar to Ben, the Ruben in his name. And so uh, the idea here is that the is really the expression of the feeling of the mother when the child is born, when, when the son is born. It's not like they're um, language experts and they're trying to say, look, here's how to decipher what this means. Uh, this is an expressive language with, with expressions by these mothers. So it's what, it sounds like what's happening in the lives of the, of the women, Leah and Rachel. And that's going to be interesting for us because even when the two maidservants have sons, it's Leah and Rachel who named them, never Jacob and nobody else. So let's look at them. Chapter 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Again, we see who is sovereign over who has children. The Lord is sovereign, and it's not based on who deserves it or who doesn't deserve it. We know that all too well from experience. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which sounds like her. So the first son is born and it's Reuben, the, the, the Lord has looked. Now Simeon, the Lord has heard. This is the God who sees and who hears. And verse 34, again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, which sounds like attached. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, which sounds like praise. Then she ceased bearing. And so what we have so far is that Leah has given birth to four sons very quickly, and there has begun an unfortunate competition between these two sisters with this one husband. And the score... If, as if they were keeping score, is four to zero. Leah with four, Rachel with zero. And so there's friction. There's going to be a lot of friction. Verse one of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. You see a problem already with Rachel's heart. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And haven't we seen this so much already in Genesis? And haven't we recognized this in our own life? I see something that I want. I need it. I deserve it. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. You see that, that escalation of sin and temptation in our hearts, and you see it here in just the words that she says. Verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So he says, look, obviously I'm not the problem here. I've already had four children with Leah, right? It's God who has withheld children from you. Now, we need to pause for just a minute right here. And the first thing we need to say is that Jacob was speaking the truth, but do you see how he weaponized it against his wife? 
You see how he used the word of God just to, to, in, a, in a harmful, in a weaponized way. Do not, brother and sister, use the word of God as a weapon against people who are hurting. We, we know that this, this word of God is a two-edged sword because it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Ephesians 6 says the word of God is the sword of the spirit which is used in spiritual warfare. But it's not a hammer for us to go around banging people over the head with, is it? Especially people who are hurting. Ephesians 4 tells us that the truth must be spoken in love. And sometimes it's loving just to give it to somebody straight, but not during a moment of difficulty and hurting and pain uh, when a mother who desires children cannot have children. It's an excruciating and a prolonged, difficult time for a couple not to have children when they want to have children. And there's a lot for us to consider about how to help uh, couples through this and, and women through this and, and encourage and edify them and glorify Jesus by what we say. Uh, this was not how to do it. <laughs> and that includes a husband to his wife. It was not sinful for Rachel not to be able to have children. It wasn't her fault, was it? Who was it that, who had, was it that who had, <laughs> if I can say it, who had withheld her from having children, who had closed her womb? God had. So it wasn't wrong for Rachel not to have children. Um, what we need to realize is that even though there's something that's happening that's not your fault or that's not wrong, you can respond wrongly. We can respond sinfully to things that we haven't done or things that are happening to us that we haven't done anything wrong with or it hasn't been our sin that has brought us on this. She did need to be corrected, but she needed to be helped. <laughs> and he didn't help. He was just correcting her, bashing her over the head with the truth. The very least that he should have done was what his father did, Isaac, when his wife couldn't have children, pray for her. But we don't see that from him. He just, he just, God did it. <laughs> so left to come to her own solution then, verse 3 says, she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Now, have you ever tried something like that before? Like, you know, this was wrong before, it didn't work in the past, but it'll be different this time. <laughs> if you're anything like me, you've tried the wrong thing over and over again, and it never works out right. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan sounds like judged. Verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty rustlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali, which sounds like wrestling. So now Jacob has six sons, four by Leah, including Levi, who would be the priestly tribe of Israel, and Judah, who would be the royal line of Israel. Both of those are through Leah. But there are six sons now, and the competition is only growing between these sisters. Look at verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Sounds like good fortune, good turn of events. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher which by this point, you can guess, sounds like happy. So again, competition, this, this, this sordid mess 
of a competition. Now the score is six to two. Leah's team has six. Rachel's team has two. Things begin to change in verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, maybe only four years old at this point, he goes toddling around into the field. He went and he found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now mandrakes here, there was a superstitious belief that they brought aphrodisiac properties and and possibly some fertility properties. and so the whole point was uh, Jacob to come to Laban for a wife who would not hold fast to idols, but here we see the superstition within Rachel and, and holding fast to those superstitions, and she's going to continue that. We'll see that later on, Lord willing, next week. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And, and can you hear the bitterness in that response? The one who's envious that Rachel has Jacob's heart to the one who's envious that she's able to have children. Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Again, just what a mess that this is within this family. Trading and bartering time with the husband for for some mandrakes, also called love apples. (laughs) I mean, this this is a mess here, right? You, you may end up having even more children, <laughs> um, but I need to try to find a way to have children by going around the Lord. That's the idea here. I'm going to try to use mandrakes. I, I can't, I, I, the Lord isn't giving me Yahweh, this God of Jacob isn't giving me children, so I'm going to try to do it another way by, by these love apples, th- these mandrakes. So verse 16 says, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. That's Leah, the one without the mandrakes. God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, which sounds like wages. Now again, we just need to be honest with what's happening here. Call this what it is. This is this is ridiculous, isn't it? Buying time, I mean, I mean it, it's, a, it's a really big mess. And it was all brought about by, by this lust for Rachel, Laban's deceit, uh, the horrible situation of two wives plus two maidservants. Uh, this should cause us some, some, like, we're shaking our heads, right? Like, ah, oh, I can't imagine what life would be like this. So even though Rachel thought she could outwit God and use love apples, mandrakes, to have children. It was Leah who had a child instead, and and not just one. Verse 19 says, Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she named his, called his name Zebulun, which sounds like honor. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So there we go. Leah now has borne him six sons. Levi, Judah, the others, plus there were two that her servant Zilpah bore. There are now eight sons on her side. Rachel still had two that were both from her maid servant, and Leah has also just given birth to a daughter, Dinah, and she will be very important later on. We know that there were other daughters uh, born to Jacob. Genesis 37, 35 tells us that. But now Leah has Six sons and one daughter, that's seven. That's the number of completeness in the minds of the Old Testament people. Seven children Leah has borne to Jacob. It's complete. 
Surely he will love me now. What about Rachel? Verse 22 says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. See, God's graciousness to her. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And this name, Joseph, actually sounds like taking away and adding. It's taking away the reproach, and then may he add another son. But what's important is that Rachel here acknowledges where this son comes from. It wasn't the love apples. It was from God. It was from God. God has given the son and removed my reproach. So there you have it, 11 sons born to Jacob through four different women. Now again, people make the claim that the Bible is invented and made up and imaginary, but let me ask you this question. If you were going to invent the beginning of your nation, would you have it as this story? (laughs) Would you make up a story like this? about the beginnings of a great nation. No, but this is the true to life, factual, honest account of how it happened with all of this mess. And sometimes we think, man, how great it would be to be part of God's plans and informing the nation of Israel. But so often, humanity messes things up. We make it so much more messy and difficult than it should be. But through all of this, through the mess God brought the tribes of Israel into existence through this. And we don't see number 12 yet. He won't be born until chapter 35. But God uses, he works through all of this disgusting messiness and this painfulness to bring about goodness, his perfect plan, and even beauty. You're like, what do you mean by beauty? Well, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, the the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel will be on the 12 gates of the new Jerusalem. These boys who were born and named by their mothers in the middle of all of this messiness and this wreck, those names are going to be remembered forever in the new Jerusalem on the 12 gates there. Do you think God can bring good out of trouble, (laughs) out of messiness? Without condoning sin, God works and He moves. And so we reflect on this section. We think back to it, and our lesson here is, Christian, don't be needy toward everybody, everyone. The blank there is needy. Now, we need to talk about that (laughs) because God did create us with needs. We are always and always totally dependent on God for every need. He designed it that way. He made it that way. And He's the one who provides us everything that we need. He's the one that has given us all of the food. We saw that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He, he provides us, and we, we know that we need to be around other people. That was part of His plan. He said it was not good for the man to be alone, so He made woman. That means it wasn't good for the woman to be alone either because she was made for that purpose of being together with the man. And even when our greatest need is fulfilled, forgiveness of sins so that we can be right with God, we can have a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, even when that is met, we have the need to be around other people fulfilled in an even greater way in the church. This is where we're all supposed to be with one another, serving one another, um, growing together and and discipling one another, providing accountability and service and, and worship, loving one another. Right? All of the one another's that we talk about so much. And brother and sister, that's why internet church, watching online, it can be good for us when that needs to happen, but it's never a good substitute for being here with the body. It's never a good substitute. It's not church just to watch it. It's, it's, it's not worship or fellowship, it's spectatorship. 
right? It's like the person that thinks I'm so great at football because I watch it on TV all the time, <laughs> right? The person that thinks, oh, I'd be a great soldier on the battlefield because I play the shoot 'em up games, video games all the time, right? I mean, I'd be great at it. I mean, it's better than nothing. I mean, it's, it's better if you can't make it to, to watch online, but the church doesn't exist just to be watched, <laughs> but to be participated in. And it doesn't, it's not here just to meet my every need, my every perceived need. Being needy in the sense of, of this reflection back over this chapter means focusing continually on a collection of needs that I perceive and needs that I perceive are not being met. I need affirmation. I need approval. I need that person's attention. In other words, needs from people that God never intended for them to meet. That's what this word needy means in this context. Because we look at Leah, and as she has children, she says things like, now my husband will love me because of what I've done, right? She says, now this time my husband will be attached to me. We see Leah say, now my husband will honor me. And she wasn't just thinking about her husband. She was thinking in chapter 30, verse 13, she says, happy am I for other women have called me happy. And so she's got on her mind, what is, what is my husband thinking of me? And how am I doing? How's my performance? And, and what are people around me thinking of me? Rachel similarly says in chapter 30, verse 1, give me children or I shall die, right? Chapter 30, verse 8, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Do you see how dependent these women are on what other people think of them? And it's not wrong to desire attention and, and affection, to love, you know, to, to, to desire love from your husband or wife. I mean, those are not wrong things. But when it becomes the motivation for every decision you make, and it leads to bad decisions or even sin, well, that, that's a problem. We're seeking something from people that God never intended for them to be able to meet in our life. This is the neediness we're talking about. The true evaluation of you comes from what God says about you in His Word. It doesn't come from others. And here's where we differ from worldly psychology. It doesn't even come from yourself. What you think. You're not free. You and I are not free to determine our existence what we are, who we are, nor are we even able to correctly determine what our greatest needs are. God tells us all of that. The world says, you determine what you are, you determine what you need. The world says, make sure you get what you need and get what you want, do whatever it takes, right? God's Word tells you, you are a human being, either male or female, made in God's image for His glory that way. You are an image bearer of God, God Himself. God's Word says that He made you exactly the way He wanted you, with that receding hairline, <laughs> or that super long hair, the curly hair, the freckles, the, the big nose, the little nose, whatever the, you know. He made you, He formed you and crafted you just the way that you are. And He's happy, He's pleased in His creation. God tells you that He did all of that. God's Word also tells you that you're a sinner. And that I'm a sinner and that, that we are full of sin. Not that we're sinners because we sin. We're sinners, we, we sin because we're sinners. That's what his word tells us. And the only hope for making that go away and making the sin go away and having a relationship with this holy, eternal God other than his wrath is through Jesus Christ, through his love, through his mercy, to his grace. And in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from that love. 
How many things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. He will hold us. He will keep us. He will hold us fast, as we sang this morning. And he's going to work in us to change the sinfulness in us to holiness. So do not believe or search for affirmation from people or approval from people or validation in what your flesh tells you or what others tell you about yourself. Believe what God has said about you, what God says to you. Believe that God is with you, believer, and live that out. It's not a coincidence that Hebrews 13 actually makes this connection that we're talking about. In Hebrews 13, verse 4, he says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. How am I supposed to be able to do that? When I need the affirmation, I need the approval in, in these inappropriate sexual relationships. How am I supposed to keep from wanting money for fulfillment? And, and you know, what do I replace all of those things with that, that, that the world teaches me I should search for those in those things? What do I replace it with? He says, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is with us. So we can confidently say, Hebrews says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's a whole lot better than sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me, right? Because that's not true. But they don't have to hurt us because what God has said in His Word, He has breathed out to us is more reliable, more sure, more true than anything anybody, including us, can say about us. So ground your identity in what God says, not what others think of you, not what, others, uh, not what you think of you or what you feel of you. Learn the truth, hold to the truth, and use the truth to defeat the lies that we believe and that we hear. Don't be needy towards others. Be needy to the Lord and His Word. Let's move on to the final section. The last part here in uh, section number 3, chapter 30, to finish out, verses 25 to 43, Jacob reaps prosperity. Through all of this, Jacob reaps prosperity. The final section has two parts. In the first part, Laban and Jacob make a deal. Here we go again. They're going to make a deal, verses 25 to 34. Let's look at verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. So Jacob says, look, it's been 14 years. I've got this humongous family. <laughs> I need to start providing and caring for them. Verse 27. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Now, it wouldn't have taken him a whole lot of divination trying to read the stars or, or palms or anything like that to know that God was blessing him because of Jacob being there. And Jacob calls him out on that. Verse 29, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. Do you notice the boasting here? But not in himself boasting in what God has done. Look what the Lord has done. You don't need divination for this. Come on, Laban, just open your eyes, right? But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Notice this response. Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. <laughs> I'm not going to owe anybody anything. I, I, you know, I'm not dependent on you. I'm trusting the Lord. I'm not going to be dependent on you or owe you anything. He says, if you will do this for me, I will again pastor your flock and keep it. Let me pass through 
all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Those are all the animals that nobody wanted. Speckled and spotted, you know, lambs are supposed to be, they're supposed to have white wool, give me the black ones. They're supposed to be, you know, just one solid color, give me all the spotted and speckled and all the other ones that you don't want. So my honesty, verse 33 says, well, answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats or black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, <laughs> let it be as you have said. So the deal is, I'm going to go through your flock today and pick out all the ones you don't want. You don't want them. They don't bring the best price. You know, whatever I take, that's what I'll take. And, the, and nothing else. You don't even have to trust me. Just look at the animals, right? They'll speak for themselves. That's the first part. The second part of this section is, not surprisingly, Laban breaks the deal. Verse 35. Laban says, okay, if we're going to take the spotted ones when he goes through my flock today, then I'm going to beat him to it and go through today and remove them all. Verse 35. That day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. So he's taken them all out. He's given them to his sons. And then he sent his sons three days away. So he's, gonna, he's trying to do everything he can to make sure Jacob gets nothing, right? Because speckled and spotted animals have a higher probability of having, uh, giving birth to speckled and spotted animals, right? Solid color ones have a higher likelihood of giving solid color offspring. But who do we know is ultimately in charge of who gives birth, what animals give birth, when and how? God. So what recourse does Jacob have now? Let's read what he does, verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped, and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. <laughs> so Jacob has the sheep and the goats drink water and breed, in front of some peeled sticks, and it works. Or does it? <laughs> See, again, people want to cast doubt on the Word of God. Look at this, ridiculous superstition. We know today this is you know, gene, uh, DNA and, and genetics and how this all works. This would never have worked. Look at this ridiculous superstition. But Jacob knew it was up to God to bring this about. You say, how do you know that? Because, Lord willing, next week we'll hear it from his own lips in chapter 31. Verses 8 and 9, he says, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. God's doing this. Laban, Laban's trying to do everything he can to make sure Jacob gets nothing. Jacob's doing this thing with the sticks and putting them in places, and, and, and it's working. But it's because he knows that God is bringing this about. He's given them, the flocks, to him. He was doing something, acting in faith. He's doing something, acting in faith. He says, look, Lord, I'm completely at your mercy. <laughs> There's really nothing I can do. If I peel some sticks, I mean, you know, what, what's that going to do? Well, let me ask, why did it work for Elisha when he threw a stick into the river and metal floated, the metal axe head? Do you remember that when Elisha did that? Why did that work? 
Well, that didn't work. God worked. God used that to bring it about. When there was poison in the stew during the days of Elisha, the prophets came and said, there's poison in there. He's like, throw some flour in it. (laughs) Flour doesn't remove poison, brothers and sisters, right? (laughs) Why did that work? It didn't work. God worked in that. So see, God's using feeble means of human beings to bring about his plans, his purposes. So we don't need to get all wrapped up in trying to figure out which chemicals in these sticks might have been transmitted to the baby in utero. (laughs) You know, which which sticks might have had DNA-changing properties for for the coloring of these animals. God works through means. And it's usually, again, the feeble means that we we give, that, that we're trying to do. So Jacob's doing something here. And there are a lot of guesses for why this happens, but the point is it was God who was doing this. Verse 41. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before their eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would, give, would be Laban's and the stronger, Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So after a time, Jacob's even able to just use the strong animals with, and, and breed them with strong animals and they keep having all of the animals that, he's gonna be having, that God's giving him the spotted and the speckled and the striped. So the whole thing was dependent on God's work. Laban tried to do whatever he could to to, to keep that from happening, but Laban can't overcome God's plan. Jacob does something. He can't bring about God's plan. Jacob can't make it happen, but he doesn't also just sit idly by and say, let go and let God. (laughs) He trusted himself to God to the providence of God, to God's working. Is, is, is God's promise going to be true? Well, I, I have to place my trust in that. And he did. And so we asked the question, has this, ever, this sort of thing ever happened to you? Have you ever been treated unfairly? <laughs> how, how did you handle it? You know, when you had a supervisor that said, yes, you can take your vacation during that time, and then, and then the time comes, and he's, ah, yeah, sorry, your, your vacation's canceled. <laughs> your, your, your vacation time's canceled because uh, we just have something going on, and, and you've got to change your plans. Wait, that's not fair. How, how do you handle that? This is the, you know, changing the rules. This is the, the IRS making adjustments, the, the government changing the laws, the, the deadline that you thought you had that expired earlier than you were told. How, how do we handle these things? We do what we can, and we trust the Lord. That, I mean, that's, that's what Jacob was doing. He, he did what he could. I'm going to take some sticks. I'm going to just trust that the Lord will use this in some way. He did what he could, and he trusted the Lord. You know, we look at people in the world. We look at people around us, and, and we can look at people doing the same things that we're doing, and they're just getting rich, and we're just not getting any money for it. <laughs> you know, we're not getting ahead. We're, we're not able to pull ahead, and, and you know, why is this happening? We've looked before that who's the one who's sovereign over who is rich and who is not? God is. I mean, think about a few years ago. Do you remember, do you remember the webpage, MySpace? Some of you are like, what is that? <laughs> MySpace, had, MySpace had millions of users. People on, it was like a Facebook, an early like, version of Facebook, but then Facebook came along and won out. A small online bookstore that started 28 years ago has now become one of the world's largest retailers of, like, anything you could imagine, just about, right? The sixth largest company on the planet. How did that happen? <laughs> well, it was his ingenuity. It was his business sense. It was a key. 
those were the things that, was, that God used, but God determined that these companies would be big and some companies would go away, and that was, that was his plan. There are plenty of other people doing the same things, but God brings about what his will is. So God's the sovereign one. We need to learn to enjoy the blessings that he has given us instead of focusing on all the things that other people have that we don't have, right? So we're, we're learning don't be speedy to believe everything. Don't be needy toward everybody. The last lesson here is, Christian, don't be greedy for everything. And don't be envious of what people have and, and what I don't have. You know, we can enjoy God's blessings without envy. Work through, brother and sister, the difficulty of the idea of fairness. You know, well, this isn't fair. God brings about his plan, and his blessings come about through his plan. And even despite the things that are happening, God brings about his will. We can act with integrity. We can be content with what God has given. It may be a whole lot. It may be a little bit. But we recognize that it all comes from him. He uses the means, so we praise him for it. One of my favorite passages is in Proverbs 30. You can turn there with me, or you can just listen to what to the words of, of this prayer. Proverbs 30, verse 7. The words of Agur, the, the son of Jacob, the oracle. This is a prayer that he prays to God. And I echo this prayer in chapter 30 of Proverbs, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. First one, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Keep me from, from that, Lord. The second thing, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me because I don't want to deny you. Let's not be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? I got all this myself. So, so don't, don't give me more than I need. Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or the other extreme, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See, there, there's contentment in, in the Lord's provision. I don't want more than I need because then God will you know, puff me up with pride and it'll make me think that I've done all this and all the great things that I've done and, and who, who needs God? And God, don't let me get so poor that I start stealing and then profane your name. I, I love that prayer in Proverbs 30, but that's the idea here. We need to make sure that we're not greedy, that we're not envious that we're content. Well, these are important life lessons for a believer. There, there are warnings here. There's God's work here. Um, speedy to believe anything. Needy toward everyone. Greedy. <laughs> and it, sound, it sounds a little funny, maybe a little trite, but, but hopefully this makes these lessons stand out to you because these are the same lessons we've been learning that we need instead of falling for anything, instead of being speedy to believe just anything, we're trusting the Lord for wisdom. That, that's what we're... That's what we're learning about in these, in these lessons. Trust the Lord for wisdom. Instead of being needy towards everybody else, we're trusting the Lord for our identity, for who he, who he has made us in His creation, and then who He remakes us to be in our justification when we're saved. And don't be greedy. We're learning to trust the Lord to provide. Trust Him. This is what it looks like to live by faith not by sight, to trust the Lord for wisdom, to trust Him for identity, to trust Him to provide instead of falling for the ways of the world. Jacob's learning these lessons. 
We're learning these lessons along with him. And Lord willing, these will stick with us. And not because we've got some moral lessons, that we've got some boxes to check. Because this is how God wants us to live, fully trusting him. Father, you are the God who is faithful, the God who is trustworthy. Lord, we thank you that you are God, that you are the all-powerful, almighty, eternal God. Lord, if we were God, things would be a mess. Things wouldn't be here, Lord, because we can't do what you can do. Father, we praise you, we worship you. Lord, I pray that that worship would, would continue far beyond this service, Lord, that in the life of each one of your people, that we would be worshiping you with our lives, Lord, with our words and our works. Lord, everything that we do, that we would do for your glory. God, for those who do not know you, Lord, for those who have never turned from their sin to believe in Jesus Christ, God, we pray that you would work in their heart and mind. Lord, show them sin in them. Show them their sinfulness. God, show them that there's no way for that to be removed, either either through eternity in hell or, God, through the mercy and the blood of Jesus. God, thank you for that sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, we pray that if there are people around us who don't know him, who don't know this salvation, this hope, this faith that is given to us, God, we pray that you would make us more bold, more able, more loving to share your truth, Lord, to share the gospel, to live and speak the gospel. God, we pray that if we're nervous about that, Lord, and if we don't know, we're not quite sure how, Lord, that we would stay after and that we'd go to this class and, Lord, we'd be encouraged by, by another way, Lord, to share the hope and the truth. Father, thank you for this word. You are so good and your word is good. We praise you. We worship you. We lift up the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.